Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Tens of thousands of Russian troops are massed at the Ukrainian border in a move that America's foreign policy experts fear means Vladimir Putin is going to order an invasion soon. The crisis has sent diplomats flying across Europe trying to figure out who is willing to do what to stop a Russian invasion. We're going to get an update on the situation with former Russian Ambassador Michael McFaul. And then we'll discuss the prospect of the world's first true cyber war. Digital fighting would almost certainly accompany any IRL troop movement. And as we saw with the NotPetya cyber attack in 2017, there's no guarantee that the damage would not leak out to global systems. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Just when it seemed like there was just about nothing that Democrats and Republicans in Washington could agree on, the Russia-Ukraine situation has flared up and members of both parties have begun to talk tough about what is nearly always called, quote, Russian aggression. Bernie Sanders weighed in earlier this week in The Guardian with a less bellicose stand, saying, we must do everything possible to try and find a diplomatic solution to what could be an enormously destructive war in Ukraine. But his position seems pretty lonely, and the Biden administration has issued strong warnings to Moscow. Here to think through the situation and the American response to it with us is Michael McFall, who was our ambassador to Russia from 2012 to 2014. He's also a professor of political science here at Stanford. Welcome back to the show, Michael McFall. Thanks. Great to be back. Yeah. So the situation is certainly tense, though not all European diplomats have sounded the same alarms, quite like American and British ones. And Ukraine's president has also downplayed the possibility of an invasion. How should we be calibrating our expectations for the outbreak of a real war here? Well, Alexis, in my own view, we should spend a lot, ta- a lot less time thinking about the probabilities of intervention and whatever you think it is, whether you think it's 80, 50, or 20, and I know people that think it's 80 and 50, not many who think it's 20, but I know lots of people who, who, who are assessing mm-hmm. it that way. I think their real thought, both for dip- diplomats and commentators, is how to reduce it. So if you're at mm-hmm. 80, what can we do to get to 70? If you're at 50, what can we get to do to 40? This guessing game about what Putin's going to do, I think, is we, we're, we're spending a little too much time on that and then not enough time on thinking about ways to actually change the situation. And I want to be clear. I know Putin probably better than almost all Americans. I met him in 1991. 
I've written 40 articles about him and a couple of books. I sat across the table from, from him for five years during the Obama administration. Uh, we have some mutual friends. I, I think I know how he thinks better than most. And I am not prepared to say that I know that he's gonna invade or not. So if I'm not prepared to say it, why are so many other people with a lot less knowledge saying definitively this, that, or the other? Absolutely. I mean, I, this is a question I actually do want to get to, which is how can the U.S. help avoid war? I mean, this really seems to be like there is so much momentum behind amping up the both perception of tension as well as like real actions that will increase tension. So so what are we what should we be doing? Right. And I'm, I'm glad you distinguished their perceptions of tensions versus actual tensions on the capabilities side. Just to be clear, Putin is amassing on all borders of Ukraine. Uh, the largest military force, I believe, since 1939 to be amassed uh, against a country. And so he is he has the capabilities to launch a full scale invasion. That doesn't mean he's made that decision. Uh, that does, he, And remember, he can do many things between no war and full scale war. Mm -hmm. um, my own view is that he probably hasn't made that decision yet. He's still waiting to see what will come uh, through negotiations. So I think the Biden administration, first and foremost, and with our allies and partners, um, need to do a, a combination of, you know, what, what it's called coercive diplomacy, right? So a combination of, of making it more costly to intervene, making it even more costly after the intervention, that's where sanctions come in, but also engage in negotiations. So, you know, I think they got a slow start and I think they're not winning the framing argument, as you alluded to in the beginning of our program. Uh, maybe we'll get to that a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But on the basic policy instruments that they have, which are weak ones, let's be clear, they're not as, you know, uh, they're more limited vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia and Ukraine than they would be uh, dealing with other foreign policy issues. But on the, on the basic levers of diplomacy and coercive diplomacy, I think they're playing them right. So number one, increase military assistance to Ukraine. Should have started that a year ago, should have done more uh, earlier, but they're doing that. Number two, move NATO, uh, American troops and NATO troops uh, closer to the Russian borders to uh, calm down and to make sure our allies are assured that we will protect them should God forbid there be any bleeding over of a future military conflict between Russia and Ukraine to our NATO allies. Um, and then three, um, somewhat controversially, but I, I now agree with them. I didn't in the beginning, I wanna be clear, but they have decided to present to the Russian government a, a, you know, a comprehensive set of economic sanctions that will be put in place if they intervene. Uh, that's a way to try to deter the intervention. Now, my disagreement was I would have liked them to have publicized that list um, in part so that the world would know, all Russian people would know, um, and in part, so it would tie their hands. If you publish something, you say you're going to do it, it makes it harder to litigate it afterwards. But on that small issue, I, 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 I now understand the logic of the Biden team. And I think those are the three main pillars of what is appropriate uh, to do. And then, of course, negotiation. Uh, the fourth and final one, you know, some people criticize them for uh, writing down their um, responses to the, the Putin treaties. Remember, he signed, he sent, he wrote unilaterally, which is very odd in diplomacy, by the way. Mm -hmm. Usually treaties are negotiated. They're kept secret until everybody agrees. This was a very different uh, process. But Putin wrote one for NATO, wrote one for the United States, 
said, you know, sign at the bottom line. Um, and when they didn't sign, he said, well, send us your written comments. And Biden did. And NATO did. Uh, and I think that and criticized by some on the right uh, for for appeasement. But I think that was the right decision. I think if you, if Putin actually wants to negotiate um, about European security, there's there's work to be done uh, if it could be done in a mutual and reciprocal basis. Yeah. So it seems like if we want to understand what Putin wants and what the interests of of Russia are here, we do have to understand sort of why now. This has been yes. a long, long simmering conflict. So what's the best thinking for why now? Well, let me say two things. First, the bigger picture and then the, the precipitant, right? So the bigger picture, I think, is not well understood. Uh, the bigger picture is not about NATO expansion and, you know, little security guarantees. Do you think mighty Russia is really threatened by Ukraine? Uh, NATO expansion, the last major wave of NATO expansion was 20 years ago. And nobody in Brussels, nobody in Washington, and nobody in Kiev did something new to, to say, we're going to expand NATO to Ukraine now. The bigger issue from Putin's perspective, just I want to explain, I don't agree with it, but I think it's important for people to understand it, are two things. Number one, Putin thinks that the West and the United States in particular took advantage of Russia when Russia was weak. Uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed back in 1991 and wrote the rules of the game for the international system, the liberal international mm -hmm. order, that was unfair to Russia. Now, Russia's stronger. Russia wants to change those rules. He wants to revise those rules. And that way, it reminds me a little bit of Germany after mm -hmm. World War One and the Versailles Treaty when they said this is not fair. That's the way he talks about the world. And then number two. And, and to be related, fair on that point, too, I mean, the U.S. did enforce a kind of wild liberalization of the Russian economy. That was, you know, a, a major shock to the social systems that had existed in, in that area of the world for quite a long time. Well, I'd, I'd answer that a little more nuanced. Uh, enforced upon Russia, I, I don't think is correct. Russia invited those liberal advisors and took the billions of dollars from the West. Nobody would. This was not Germany in 1945 or Japan. Uh, remember, Boris Yeltsin was the president then. He invited them there. And by the way, neoliberal reforms lasted about three months in Russia, another myth. Uh, and then the Gazprom CEO took over at the end of 1992, and they never really did implement those reforms. But, but you're right. The, the basic thing was those ideas were prominent around the world. We had all the power. They didn't. From Putin's point of view, those were unfair rules. But the second thing is related, I think, is more important. Um, he thinks that the Slavic nations uh, should be united. He doesn't really think of Ukraine as a, a separate nation from Russia. And that was a wrong from 1991. Again, I want to underscore, it were Russians and Ukrainians and Belarusians that signed the, the, the agreement that dissolved the, the Soviet Union, not the United States. Um, and he is focused on bringing them together. And the final piece in terms of understanding what really bothers Putin, it's not NATO expansion, it's democratic expansion. Uh, he looks out at the world and not without cause, by the way. He looks at the United States and he sees that we use overt, covert and sometimes just rhetorical support to undermine autocratic regimes that we don't like. And that's true. We have done that. Um, and he called, you know, in his part of the world, they're called color revolutions. So Serbia 2000, Georgia 2003, Ukraine 2004. And in all of those instances, he doesn't see the, the active 
activism of the people there, which he doesn't believe in, he sees the hand of the CIA. Uh, and so his principal long-term beef is with us about that issue. And that's going to be hard to reconcile because the United States can't dictate to other peoples to say, well, you don't, you shouldn't ask for democracy. You shouldn't try to have democratic regimes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the big frame, the precipitants. Though, yeah, the precipitant. Yeah. Two, two precipitants. One, um, uh, President Zelensky uh, elected uh, a complete outsider, a television figure, comedian, uh, president of Ukraine. He's from Eastern Ukraine. His first language is Russian. Uh, one of his parents is Jewish. Uh, so not of the, you know, he's not part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, of which uh, the Western part of uh, Ukraine was uh, from. And when he came to power, he said, I know these guys in Moscow. I know how to speak their language. I'm going to do a deal with them. And so they, they tried and they failed. And so Zelensky then pivoted hard against Russia, uh, arresting one of Putin's uh, cronies there, shutting down Russian TV, and that created lots of tensions between Russia and Ukraine. And the second precipitant was Biden's election. Remember, before with Mr. Trump, President Trump, uh, Putin had a partner uh, in trying to revise that international order I was just talking about, right? Um, On many issues, Trump and Putin agreed, including like NATO, including, you know, lots of things they agreed on. Ideologically, they agreed. They're kind of populist nationalists and, you know, the, the, the liberal decadent West values need to be rolled back. And so he very logically, in my view, Putin was waiting for um, a, a Trump re-election and hoping that in that scenario, he might be able to achieve a lot of these foreign policy goals. And when that was taken off the table, I think that put pressure on him to think about other mechanisms to achieve those objectives. We're talking with former U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul, about the crisis in Ukraine. And we want to give you a chance to ask your questions for former Ambassador McFaul. Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more on Ukraine right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Stanford professor and former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul, about the crisis in the Ukraine. And we invite your questions about what's happening there on the Ukraine-Russia border, sending reverberations throughout the world. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You know the Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email's forum at kqed.org. Org. Uh, before we get to some calls and comments which are rolling in, I did want to ask you about the role of Russia's oil and gas industry and Europe's oil and gas needs, uh, which are kind of underlying, seems like a lot of the diplomatic efforts uh, in Europe right now. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about sort of how dependent Europe is on those sources of fossil fuels and how Russia is sort of leveraging those assets? Uh, too dependent is my, my short answer. Um, and I say that, uh, Alexis, I was, you know, I, I worked on the Obama campaign. I was part of the transition. And then I joined the National Security Council and, you know, January 21st, 2009. In our main transition document, uh, we had five major foreign policy objectives for Russia and Eurasia at the time. Uh, one of them was reducing European dependence on fossil fuels from Russia. Um, and I just was looking at that document the other day and it's just striking how little has, some has been achieved, but not enough has been achieved. I mean, different countries have different levels, but you know, they're 30, 40%, uh, some are hundred uh, percent, some of the former Warsaw Pact countries. So there's lots of dependency there. Um, uh, but the other way, the other side is true as well. There's lots of Russian dependency on the right, revenues both ways, right. from those oil and gas uh, uh, shipping. So that's a good thing, in my view. And that could be a ballast, perhaps, in, Put in Putin's decision making when he, de when he decides whether or not to go in or not. Um, President Biden just said very definitively a few days ago uh, at the press conference he had with Chancellor Schultz was, if Russia invades, we will take financial measures to shut down um, a new uh, gas pipeline to Germany called Nord Stream 2. Uh, and we have the power to do that. And, and so that, that's on the table. Uh, and I think that'll happen. So hopefully that'll be part of Putin's calculus when he decides what to do. Yeah. You know, we've got, uh, I want to bring in some folks who have questions for you about the situation. Uh, first up, we've got Wynn in Menlo Park. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Uh, when the USSR broke up, and the Ukrainians agreed to give up the nuclear weapons that they had. What did we do with Russia and the United States to guarantee their security? Thanks so much for that question, Wayne. Great question, Wynn. Um, and it's a very bitter question for most Ukrainians. So uh, we signed something called the, the Budapest Memorandum in 1994. And the United States, Great Britain, Russia, and Ukraine all signed it. It was not a treaty, uh, but the basic deal was you give up your nuclear weapons and we all guarantee your territorial uh, integrity and your sovereignty. And obviously, Vladimir Putin violated that in 2014. And the Ukrainians, the and, uh, Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian government are deeply upset, first and foremost, with the United States that we didn't do more to um, you know, defend and adhere to the Budapest Memorandum. Uh, can't go back and rewrite history. It, it, you know, uh, it, remember Russia signed it too, and they violated it. But it's very bitter in Ukraine, and, and people. Some commentators say, "Well, we made a mistake in signing that agreement." Let's bring in Don from San Jose. Welcome, Don. Thank you. 
Yeah, so my question to Mr. McFall uh, is if uh, we do not uh, adequately support Ukraine and prevent Russia from invading and even taking over part of it, Xi Jinping in China is watching very closely to see how the West reacts to Russian aggression. I think that if we do not support uh, Ukraine adequately, then uh, Xi Jinping will conclude that he can uh, then go in and take over in Taiwan. I'd be very interested to hear Mr. McFall's comments. Thanks so much, Don. Fantastic question. And, and I think it gets to the core of why this crisis is not just about Ukraine, why it's really about the future of the international system. Uh, remember, why did World War II start? World War II started because a country, Germany, and a leader, Hitler, said that the borders that were in place in Europe were the wrong borders. Uh, they left ethnic uh, German, German speakers outside. And so we said, okay, maybe he's right. Let's go along with that. Um, and we did. Um, and then he said, well, no, we want to change the borders of Poland. And in September 1939, he started to do that. And we all know what happened next, right? World War II, most tragic event uh, in European history, maybe in, in world history. And so at the end of World War II, uh, the victorious powers got together and said, uh, you know, they wrote some Ten Commandments. It's the codified in the United Nations Charter. And right at the top of those, that list was, thou shall not annex the territory of thy neighbors. I'm, I'm using that language metaphorically, yeah, of course, right. but, but it's there. It's, it's, the main, <laughs> it's the main thing that they wrote down as a way to keep the peace. Um, and for decades, there, there are little places here and there around the world where that changed. But in Europe, uh, it did not. We did not have annexation during the Cold War. Think about that. We had lots of tensions with the Soviets. They didn't annex territory. Neither did we. Neither did we let other countries do it. Um, that changed in 2014 when, the first, when, when Putin annexed Crimea. And now he's threatening to do the same. And that, I think, has global implications, because if he can get away with it, then exactly to the caller's point, then why can't Xi Jinping? And, and by the way, the China claim to sovereignty uh, over Taiwan is, is much more uh, internationally recognized than Putin's claim to sovereignty in Ukraine. But then, it, it can, then you, that's a slippery slope. There are lots of borders all over the world, in Europe and Africa and Asia, that are not drawn according to, you know, uh, where the ethnic lines are. And, and when you start pulling on that string, people can say, well, hey, wait a minute. You know, you annexed this territory back in the 19th century. We want to take that back. Russians talk about that they want Alaska back, just so your listeners know. Uh, and then the Chinese can talk about, well, they want, you know, territories that the Russians uh, took back in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And then what about territory that we took? we Americans annexed a rather unilaterally using force. So that to me is a very dangerous road that we do not want to go down. And that's why this crisis is so vitally important. So uh, Michael McFall, the, the only thing, maybe not the only thing, a thing that worries me about the Hitler analogy is that, that leads us down a very definite course of action in this, doesn't it? Well, I want to be careful with, I just, I was using one part of the Hitler analogy, Got it. right? Uh, Putin is not Hitler. He's not Nazi. He's not seeking to wipe out uh, in a genocidal way other people. I want to be very clear about that. That's a, that's a, 
uh, complicated metaphor. So I was just talking very specifically about annexation. Good, good. But, but, but we should learn the lessons of that, right? It turned out that just saying, oh, what's happening over there in the middle of Europe doesn't really matter to our interests, right? We had lots of Americans who were saying that at the time, right? It's, and I hear echoes of it in our country today. Why do we care about whether Crimea is in Russia or not? We got our own problems here at home. You know, you hear those arguments a lot. And I think we should learn the lessons of, you know, 38 and 39 and these unilateral declarations of, of these things that it turned out uh, did lead to a slippery slope uh, of, of World War II and do things differently this time around to avoid uh, um, another World War II, World War III. Let's bring in, we actually have a caller from Germany, Renee, uh, who'd like to ask some questions about uh, oil and gas. Welcome, Renee. Uh, hi. Thank you for having this conversation. Um, I listen every day. But I was wondering, so here it seems like people are a little skeptical about um, cutting off Nord Stream 2. I don't think people are very trustful of Russia in general, but it seems to me that people are kind of skeptical of um, the Biden administration saying that they want us to cut off uh, Nord Stream 2 and then maybe provide their own natural gas. And I just kind of wanted to to understand, like, what's the... Like, if that's an actual concern, or is that just kind of craziness on this side of the of the of the, the Atlantic? It's not craziness. It's a it's a very contentious issue uh, between the United States and Germany that that predates this crisis, uh, this current crisis. Um, and I could go way back. I won't. But uh, uh, but to, to to start it with the Biden administration, they made a very difficult decision that was criticized by, uh, uh, you know, Republican. And when I say Republican, there are two different Republican camps these days criticizing uh, Biden. One that he's doing too much, one that he's doing too little. Maybe we'll come back to that in a minute. But um, uh, they did this joint declaration with the government of Germany, basically saying, um, you know, the trains left the station with Nord Stream 2. It's already almost complete. We're not going to try to stop it with sanctions. Um, there was some legislation in the U.S. Congress that was seeking to do that. Uh, that's what they said. Uh, and you can imagine how that played in Ukraine, because part of what's going on with Nord Stream 2 is that the Russians want to use that pipeline so that they can stop using the pipeline that goes through Ukraine and stop paying transit fees, a couple billion dollars of transit fees to the Ukrainian government. That's their intention. Uh, give them more uh, ability to pressure Ukraine. Um, and that was kind of left in limbo. Um, with this new crisis, the president, President Biden, has become more emphatic that we will use our financial uh, leverages, right? And, and we, you know, because most of the world still uses a dollar and most of the world still wants to interact with American companies, uh, we do have those kind of levers. We rarely use them, but he's, he's hinted that they're ready to use them. And, you know, administration officials I know, um, and I used to work with most of these people in the Obama era, say that, that the United States could unilaterally shut down Nord Stream 2 uh, if it came to that. But they really don't want to come to that. They want it to be uh, together because, you know, it's, it's not a good situation when you're sanctioning uh, your allies. So um, 
that's that's the place that it's in in limbo and and one more piece of it there is new legislation uh, up on capitol hill right now senator menendez is the principal author that would put in place even more severe sanctions vis-a-vis uh, -vis Nord Stream 2. And interestingly, from what I understand, the Biden administration is trying to quietly uh, take those uh, sections out of that legislation. Yeah. You know, one last question for you. Uh, we know you got to go, but you yesterday were doing an interview and you were talking about a kind of moment that you had with uh, Russian negotiators where one of them said to you, you know, we will win this because one, we care more than you. And two, we have more patience than you do. There's news for you today, but it's going to die down. It seems like the U.S. has this problem and that other countries sort of understand us better than we understand ourselves sometimes. So where, where do you sit with the U.S.'s position in this struggle over the long term? In the long term, I'm worried, and not just about this struggle, but our uh, willingness as a people to engage, uh, uh, to defend our interests abroad. Uh, we're in a period of retrenchment right now, uh, started in our administration with President Obama. Uh, and that was I, appropriate and right, in my view. Uh, the, the Bush administration had overreached and, in my view, used military force too much to achieve our ends. Uh, I wrote a whole book about it saying, you know, we have other ways to do it. But then under President Trump, we, we pivoted into in what I would call a much more isolationist uh, foreign policy and um, uh, a disengagement with international institutions. And I think both of those tendencies are wrong. I think we benefit from being a leader in the United Nations, in the World Trade Organization, in NATO. Uh, and if we pull out, I think the world becomes anarchic, Habesian, and, and will later uh, come back to haunt us because there's not another country, including even China, that has the power and capabilities to play that role. Um, and, and, you know, related to that is this, this kind of indifference that you see in both the Democratic Party and Republican parties about, you know, what happens abroad. Uh, like, it's not our problem. Uh, and, and I think that's very dangerous. One, because I believe it uh, that values are universal. Uh, they're, they're just not, democracy is just not good for America. It's good for Ukrainians. And if Ukrainians want democracy, uh, we should be in it with them. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, one of my heroes, Martin Luther King said, a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. I think that has been true, been proven historically true in the international system. And, and Second, even if you don't care about democracy and you're just, you know, a hard-headed real, realist, uh, and you can tell, by the way, I just said that, Alexis, that I, <laughs> I really hate that word because, it, you know, who wants to be an idealist when you can be a hard-headed realist? And, and, you know, they've appropriated that language in ways that I think are wrong. That's an academic debate for another call, maybe. Uh, but, um, uh, but if you believe in that, then think about it. Like every enemy the United States has ever had has been an autocracy of some form. Uh, we've had some autocratic allies, that's true, but we've never had a uh, democratic enemy. Um, and the transformation of autocracies to democracies has, has helped to make us more secure. I mean, think about, think about Germany, think about Japan, Italy after World War II. Think about the part of the world we're talking about right now. 
Um, when we went to war against Afghanistan and Article 5 of the NATO Treaty was invoked, who, the first time ever, by the way, had ever been invoked, the Poles, the Estonians, all of our new allies went to war with us and they sacrificed with us. They made us better off. Um, so this notion that we're always doing things for them, I think people need to recalculate that, that it's actually beneficial for us to, to keep in these institutions and to keep supporting ideas of democracy and human rights. You know, thank you so much for sharing so much of your time, Michael McFall, former U.S. ambassador to Russia and, of course, a Stanford political science professor as well here in the Bay Area. We really appreciate you uh, you staying with us and helping us think through all these angles. Great to be here. Let's do it again sometime. Tragically, I don't think this story's going away. Yeah, I will. We'll talk to you next week. Uh, all right. So all right. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Um, we also want to just get to some comments. Um, we have... Uh, Dave tweets, the West seems to be uh, to fall into the trap of engaging Putin in his false narrative. Why can't we collectively do a hard reframe? Tell the Russian populace and the world just how tenuous Putin's grip on reality and this power really is and that this ploy is designed to serve only Putin. Curtis writes, it seems that the goal of destroying democracy and disrupting the global order by supporting the authoritarian nationalist leaders would destabilize global security and actually be detrimental to Russia, which, economically speaking, is about the size of Texas. Can Ambassador McFall give us a reason why Putin feels this is a good strategy? Um, I don't think anyone necessarily can right now. And Adam tweets, I'm wondering if the United States is running any sort of mass propaganda campaigns in Russia, either conventional or social media, to promote the idea of democracy because they seem to be running anti-democracy propaganda here. After the break, we're going to be talking with Maggie Miller, who's the cybersecurity reporter for Politico and author of the recent article, Russian Invasion of Ukraine Could Redefine Cyber Warfare. And I think we're going to get to some of those misinformation, disinformation, and information warfare bits. We would love to hear from you. We're going to have Maggie Miller. So remember, we're talking cybersecurity and we're talking the digital realm. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions about the what could be uh, cyber warfare, a new type of cyber warfare in Russia and Ukraine. We're particularly interested, if you work in cybersecurity, how concerned are you about the prospect of a cyber war between Russia and Ukraine and possible spillover into what you're doing? I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more on Ukraine right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about Ukraine and Russia, and we want to introduce a, a new angle. We've, we're joined by Maggie Miller. She's the cybersecurity reporter for Politico and author of the recent article, Russian Invasion of Ukraine Could Redefine Cyber Warfare. Welcome, Maggie. Thank you so much for having me. So I just wanted to ask you about the first line of this story. The potential Russian invasion of Ukraine could give the world its first experience of a true cyber war. Can you just walk us through what sort of what you expect to be different? What would sort of differentiate this from uh, earlier cyber skirmishes which have occurred uh, across the world? Absolutely. Well, I think, first of all, you have to to take a step back and look at um, Russia's history and going against some of its uh, adversaries, at least in the last 10 to 15 years. You know, cyber has always been a part, at least for the last 15 years or so, of their um, way methods of attack against other nations, and in particular against Ukraine. Um, just in 2015 and 2016, you know, Russia demonstrated its ability to turn off the lights for a couple hours in portions of Ukraine when they went after power distribution centers. Um, in fact, in 2015, around a quarter million Ukrainians were left without power hmm. uh, for a couple hours, and it was repeated in 2016. But I think the the point of this now is that yes, Russia has you know used these capabilities in the Past, but it's sort of been just sort of a, a sample or, or a tasting menu, you could say, of its abilities, um, you know, versus a, a full out cyber war. You know, I, I've spoken to, to experts who have said if they were to use their full capabilities, we could see everything t- from telecommunication systems going down or being jammed. Of course, you know, the power going out, um, you know, the military systems being attacked, uh, the ability for the government to communicate going down. I mean, if they were to launch the full scope of their abilities on Ukraine, it would not only be a, a portion of their strategy, but it could be a key part of their strategy to bringing uh, Ukraine and its government to its knees. Yeah. Have we seen anything, you know, remotely like what you're detailing there? I mean, we, you know, we had the the switching out the lights for a few hours is a pretty different from like a full scale attack on a nation's, you know, uh, electrical and informational grid. Absolutely. And I think that those attacks on on Ukraine by Russia are are some of the closest we've seen. Uh, Russia also used its cyber capabilities in the past uh, 10 to 15 years against uh, Estonia and Georgia um, during different um, military um, moments. And uh, those have been uh, certainly concerning. But I I think the attacks on the grid are kind of the closest we've seen. I think the point of a, a cyber war is that a lot of our major countries, including the U.S., have very advanced cyber capabilities, but have hesitated to use them because it could lead to uh, escalatory warfare that that really we haven't seen. And I don't know if the world fully knows how to, you know, deal with, respond to, mediate. Um, so, you know, it'll be very interesting and extremely concerning, you know, should not only this invasion go forward, but should, you know, President Putin decide that he wants to unleash the full capability of, of Russian hacking on Ukraine, because I, I don't know if the world is fully prepared for, for how to respond to that. Yeah. I mean, the U.S. also somewhat Famously, in the case of Stuxnet, um, which helped knock uh, an Iranian nuclear facility um, offline, you know, has has kind of used offensive capabilities uh, at times. 
Um, and I'm wondering under what circumstances experts you're talking to think the U.S. should deploy those offensive capabilities. Yeah, and I think it's a good good point that you brought up Stuxnet, and and also an, another moment to bring up would be in in 2018 when, um, as it was reported, although uh, Cyber Command has never uh, formally confirmed this, uh, Cyber Command went after the um, headquarters of a Russian troll uh, facility uh, it, during the U.S. midterms and knocked the knocked it offline during the midterms so that they couldn't interfere. And so I think that that in both those cases, you know, Stuxnet was was interfering um, to help stop Iran's nuclear build up. And um, I think that in those cases, there has been, you know, at least some support from cyber experts in the U.S., probably not in Iran, um, for the use of these capabilities, because it goes below, you know, someone losing their life or, you know, Iran gaining these capabilities. Or in the case of the 2018 midterm elections, it stopped, you know, untold disinformation, misinformation potentially that day from, from going online or other forms of election interference. So I think that there are, you know, some good reasons to use this. But I think that those are just, again, you know, very focused, very small targeted attacks. And in the case of, you know, what, what I wrote about and what I've been speaking with in experts, you know, we really have never seen a full blown unleashing of these capabilities, you know, on a country in the case of a major war. Do we even know what our own capabilities or Russian capabilities look like? Like at, at fully released, do we, do we know what the, what would happen? Well, I mean, it, it's something that is a bit more secretive. Of course, I, I want to, you know, emphasize the U.S. is extremely sophisticated in this. Um, you know, U.S. Cyber Command. We've got the National Security Agency, um, but it is secretive for a reason. And you know, when it comes to Russia, they've certainly been a lot more. They've, they've demonstrated their capabilities a lot more. They are one of, I think, the big four countries um, in terms of uh, being able to, to cause malicious uh, cyber attacks. And I know that uh, Director of National Intelligence April Haynes gave a, a little glimpse into some of their capabilities last year in the annual worldwide threat assessment that was released, which warned that Russia was targeting underwater cables and industrial control systems in the U.S. and our allied countries. And uh, also the report specifically noted that some of the disruptions were designed as a demonstration of Russia's capabilities. So, you know, Russia and the U.S. certainly have very advanced cyber capabilities. But I think what, you know, Russia has really done is they've really, you know, put their cyber capabilities front and center and, and kind of tried to, to tease that. And, and show the world what it's capable of without, you know, having to put a single boot on the ground. Yeah. We're talking with Maggie Miller. She's the cybersecurity reporter for Politico and author of the recent article, Russian Invasion of Ukraine Could Redefine Cyber Warfare. We're wondering if you've got questions for Maggie. She's been talking with experts in this field. And if you work in cybersecurity, how concerned are you about the prospect of cyber war between Russia and Ukraine, possibly spilling over into other global systems? Give us a call now, 866 733 uh, 6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. Or you can email forum at kqed.org. You know, I do want to talk about those overspill effects. Um, we've seen this before already, right, with NotPetya. Um, maybe you could describe sort of what happened with that particular uh, cyber attack. Yeah, that, that was a major uh, demonstration. And that was, again, you know, it's, it's interesting that that attack took place, you know, right before one of the, the major holidays in Ukraine. And, you know, they they were able to target Russian hackers, uh, one particular company that was used um, by uh, many Ukrainian companies uh, uh, to part of their business operations, and as a result, took down thousands of, of companies. Like basically and, and turbo government. tax of, yes. like, 
(laughs) (laughs) basically, yes, Um, and took down thousands of companies in in Ukraine. But unfortunately, it did spill over further and ended up impacting companies around the world, including FedEx, including shipping giant Maersk, you know, anything that really used this company that had been uh, compromised. And, you know, really, I I don't necessarily think that uh, Russia intended to go, you know, worldwide. It certainly looked like it was much more of a Ukrainian focused attack. But when you let, you know, the genie out of the bottle, it's, it's really hard to put it back in. And uh, yeah, that could certainly be an issue, um, you know, with uh, any type of potential invasion in, in Ukraine. In fact, and you can see the world already, you know, bracing for that. Um, and not only just something of an overspill from Ukraine, but also specifically targeted to the US and, and its allied nations. You know, we saw that this week, Reuters reported that the European Central Bank is currently on alert for cyber attacks from Russia. The New York Department of Financial Services has issued an alert. I know last month, Department of Homeland Security put out an alert to critical infrastructure owners and operators about potential Russian cyber attacks. So the world is certainly on alert for um, spillover or even targeted attacks um, outside Ukraine. And it's uh, more than a possibility. Yeah. If you want to read more about what happened that time, there's actually a great feature story by Andy Greenberg and Wired called The Untold Story of Not Petya, the most devastating cyber attack in history. And, you know, for those of us who've been following a lot of the uh, logistical mess, um, it seems almost certain that some of the infrastructure points that would be targeted are the same ones that are under stress already uh, in the global shipping and logistics um, world. Let's bring in uh, caller Mike from San Leandro. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hi. Um, I just wanted to point out that a lot of the technologies that are being used against us and our allies now originated uh, in the United States, uh, obviously from the very beginning with the Internet itself. And for uh, short-term capital gain, we allowed our businesses to export a lot of these technologies um, and I was curious whether anything is being done in the future to now that we've seen what, you know, the results of what we've sowed to limit that. Um, obviously, to some degree, the cat's out of the bag, but we have a system of export declarations, which is supposed to uh, control uh, the export and international sales of our um, important technologies. Uh, is that being used at all today? Thanks for that question, Mike. Yeah, well, certainly that is an issue, um, especially, you know, not only when it comes to um, approved exports, but also when it comes to the the theft of intellectual property. I know China has been a major player in that as well. I know that this is something that the Biden administration um, has looked at, um, but, it, you know, in terms of, and, and I know that in, uh, export controls are, are also something being looked at for, for major sanctions um, against Russia should an invasion take place. Um, but that's certainly a good a good point to bring up and, and one that I think the Biden administration um, is certainly looking at and a, get a good point to make. Yeah. Hey, Maggie, you know, before the break, uh, Adam had tweeted at us, I'm wondering if the United States is running any sort of mass propaganda campaigns in Russia, either conventional or social media, to promote the idea of democracy because they seem to be running anti-democracy propaganda here. And I wanted to use it as a little jumping off point to to think about the cyber capabilities on both sides, you know, uh, let's call it the U.S. and uh, allies and, and Russia here. In not the sort of turning off infrastructure and attacking, you know, pipelines, but the kind of informational environment, you know, which, of course, many Americans are quite familiar with uh, that after the 2016 election. But what do we know about the current efforts there? And are they as significant 
um, in the context of the, the current crisis? Well, I, I would say that that no one is, is quite as blatant in terms of the misinformation, disinformation space as uh, as Russia is. And I don't necessarily know that the U.S. can be can be quite connected to that. However, you know, the U.S. Um, is certainly, you know, trying to get, you know, our message out there. Um, I know we've got different media operations, um, you know, that are, operate around the world. But it, it's certainly an issue that I know the U.S. is focused on. You know, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, for example, um, here in the U.S. has done a good job of countering misinformation and disinformation um, in the past two years around the election process here. Um, and I know it's something that a lot of officials see as a major threat and something that could seriously undermine um, anything happening, you know, in Ukraine. I know that Ukrainian officials are concerned that Russia could try to, you know, put out a misinformation, disinformation campaign and, and already is that undermines, you know, the Ukrainians um, confidence in their own government. And that could only, you know, help Russia's cause. So it's certainly a major issue um, to look at. Yeah. What about Ukraine itself? Obviously, they have been engaged in this long term struggle going back, you know, many years now uh, and with active uh, measures taken, you know, eight plus years now. What have they done to improve their sort of resilience in this you know, area? Funny enough, I'm pursuing a story on that right now. Um, it's certainly been a um, focus and not only a focus by Ukraine and its government, but um, the U.S. and, and some uh, Western nations that have put a lot of uh, cybersecurity professionals on the ground there in recent years to try to train uh, the workforce there. Also, the U.S. has uh, donated through um, a USAID program $38 million um, to help strengthen cybersecurity in Ukraine. Um, and I was speaking uh, last week to a, a top uh, Ukrainian cybersecurity um, official in the private sector um, who said that he really believes that the Ukrainian government in particular has helped strengthen information sharing and, and work between the government and private sector on countering these threats, which is very um, crucial when it comes to responding to any type of threat and, and even more crucially to getting systems back up and running after a successful attack. Um, so I know that you know Ukraine has focused on this. I know they still are. For example, I, I spoke with um, Representative uh, Mark Green of Tennessee, who was part of the uh, bipartisan delegation last Last month that visited uh, Ukraine, and, and he said he spoke with with President Zelensky, and, and President Zelensky mentioned that cybersecurity uh, aid was number one on his list of, of what he was uh, most asking for. Um, and so it's certainly something that they're focused on, and they know could be a threat, and they know already because just in January there were seventy government websites uh, defaced and disabled uh, for about two days, and uh, a lot of Ukrainian officials were linking that to Russia. So it's a clear and present threat, and it's something that the country has been certainly focused on. But, you know, the main point being that, that Russia is one of the most dangerous adversaries in the world in terms of its cyber capabilities. So there can be a lot of preparation in place. But, you know, Ukraine is still outmatched when it comes to cyber capabilities. Well, and you're also noting, too, just how difficult it is to, like, firmly attribute these attacks sometimes, which has also complicated things around the world in figuring out who exactly has done what. Yes, um, exactly. Let's bring in uh, Bob from the Bay Area. Welcome, Bob. Hi, I'd like to make a, a general uh, point and then a question. So I don't know if everybody remembers uh, that old the prequel in Star Wars where uh, there's this tr tremendous attack and then finally they take out the one command center that controls all the robots and then they, they all suddenly die and, you know, everybody wins. Well, anybody who watches that thinks that that's stupid. Nobody would ever do that. But in our economy, we have these giant web uh, platforms like AWS, like Amazon Google Web Platform, Services, like right. Azure, and 
a huge number of applications and communications and other things in our economy are dependent on it. I'm not the only person who's recognized this. I'd like to comment about the, the, the fact that we've allowed the development of a single point of failure to just giant parts of our, of our economy. It's a really interesting question, Bob, because I think at least, you know, and I'll just toss the question to you, Maggie, in this way. You know, some of the big technology firms have argued that it's actually that centralization allows them to have better security. So even though there are these problems, obviously, with having such a huge amount of our nation's infrastructure running through just a few uh, companies, they're also the best companies in the world at cyber defense. Right. I mean, what do you, what do you think, Maggie? No, I mean, it's it's a good point. And it is an area of vulnerability. And yes, we have some of the best companies in the world in terms of cyber defense. However, Russia has demonstrated its ability um, just last year or the end of 2020 um, to go after uh, some of our, our agencies and, and top companies through the use of that. And uh, what I'm referring to is the Solar Winds hack, um, which took place, uh, you know, we've, we finally discovered it at the end of 2020, but it had been ongoing for more than a year. Um, that has been attributed to Russia, uh, the Russian government. In fact, President Biden placed sanctions on them last April for this, but the attack allowed them to go through and, and compromise software from uh, the SolarWinds company, which was used uh, by you know thousands of organizations, including U.S. agencies, um, and, and make their way into different systems and stay there undetected for months, maybe even over a year. And you know the first one to really call out that um, that attack was Mandiant. Uh, well, at the time it was FireEye. It's now Mandiant, which is one of the top cybersecurity uh, companies in the world. They're kind of the main go-to company for responding to uh, major intrusions. Um, and they were hacked as part of this incident. So, you know, the, Russia has demonstrated its capabilities to be extremely sophisticated in using um, some of these uh, ways to go in. And, and when, you know, all these thousands of organizations have one common denominator, um, a third party company that they all use, it, it is a vulnerability and it just shows that, you know, an agency can step up its its own cybersecurity, but it's only as strong as its weakest link. And sometimes the weakest link is a third party operator. Yeah. Um, last 10 seconds, say, what are you watching now over the next week to figure out where things are headed? Well, I'm certainly watching the uh, continued buildup of troops in, in Russia and Belarus and, of course, the beginning of uh, military drills in Belarus. Um, I mean, I've been warned by by several sources I've talked to that a major cyber attack could be kind of the uh, the starting bell for uh, an invasion into Ukraine. So, you know, if we see these major cyber attacks, it's going to be right out front of the troops going in. And so, you know, if I see any sort of major attack happening, that's going to be, gonna uh, be yeah. quite the yeah. signal. Yeah. Thanks so much. That is political cybersecurity reporter Maggie Miller. We've been talking about Ukraine, and earlier we talked with former ambassador to Russia, Michael McFall. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.